APU. American Public University is proud to present The Everyday Scholar. Hello, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking to Dr. Richard Hines, Program Director of the School of Arts, Humanities, and Education. And today our conversation is about Lincoln's Own House Divided. Welcome, Rick. Welcome, Bjorn. Uh, good to be here with you. Excellent. And uh, it's great to talk to you. Uh, we've known each other for a few years, and I'm excited to learn more about Illinois and Lincoln. So I'll jump into the first question. My understanding is that your research focuses on Illinois history and Abraham Lincoln. Well, in a sense, my focus is Illinois, and during the early part of statehood, 1818 to 1865, and of course, Lincoln was the president at the time and also served in the House of Representatives in Illinois and as a, a congressman for Illinois and Washington, D.C. as well. So, yeah, he's uh, you know, part of that deal. One of the things that I think about in the antebellum period before the Civil War is just how complicated everything was and how there's so many different forces that were going on. And so going to the next question, many Americans see Lincoln as perhaps our greatest president. But what piqued your interest in the early history of Illinois? When I was in grad school, I I was uh, asked if I would do some work for the Illinois Department of Military Affairs. Uh, they wanted me to write a history of the Illinois National Guard during the Civil War. And so they flew me out there and put me up in an apartment right across the, from the state building and in the national in their archives there and i spent three months and i had seven archivists working with me and i came home with seven crates full of documents and i decided that i should do something with them other than to write the history of uh, illinois during the civil war so i used that to springboard off and look for another subject and um, my big question then was why did illinois suddenly become republican after being a bastion of the democracy for so long and just kind of took off from that point. And with being able to see so many firsthand documents, what was that like going through the pages that were from the time period? I particularly don't like the writing process. I, I'm fairly good at it, but it's tedious for me. But I love the research because it just, I don't know, it's stimulating to me. And my biggest hurdle is to not go off on tangents. So I'll find a document and think, oh my God, this is wonderful, and it will lead me to a new research question. Next thing I know, I'm researching that, and I've wasted a whole day, and I should have been back on reining myself in and go back to my initial question. But it's, it's fascinating to dig through those files. And a great deal of my family's from Illinois, and we still have a farm. There's still a farm in the family that's up in the northern county there. And so I found information about them as well. It was, it was a fascinating trip. And that leads us to the next question. My understanding is that the introduction of cotton and the need to constantly put new land under cultivation for small southern farmers to migrate to other regions, did that process have an impact on Illinois? As uh, cotton culture expanded in the South, land values increased dramatically. They're constantly putting new land under cultivation. And so it, it forced the migration of many southern backcountry farmers. And they quite often sought land that was similar to the land from which they came. And Southern Illinois is part of the Ozarks. And so it kind of fit into the kind of backcountry culture that existed before. So they, they migrated to Illinois in great numbers. So initially, Illinois was populated by individuals from the South, primarily, and then French who had settled there prior to the development of the United States. 
that's going to change dramatically over time. But initially, Illinois was very much tied to the South. And even today, if you venture into Southern Illinois, it, it's very much like being in the South because they came in such great numbers. Now, Northerners didn't migrate into Illinois until after the Panic of 1837. And then from New England, a great many of them began to migrate out to Illinois. They settled in the northern counties of Illinois. And so we, we get an interesting dynamic that occurs in Illinois at the time. And this is what makes it significant is that it kind of mirrored what was going to happen in the nation. And there's a number of reasons why that's significant. Uh, the first and foremost being that Many insist that Jefferson Davis was far better suited to be president during wartime because of his experience having been the Secretary of War and having been a senator and having you know fought in the Spanish-American War, that his experience was far greater than that of Lincoln and that Lincoln you know, came to the White House ill-prepared to govern a nation at war or even to deal with the issues that were before him, foremost being slavery. But in reality, Lincoln had lived through the same process. Prior to going to Washington, D.C., and, and I'll, I'll explain that process to you here, essentially what was going on in Illinois was that the southern counties were populated by Southerners, and the northern counties were populated by individuals from New England who came and were strongly abolitionist. Those in the South were strongly tied to the Confederacy. In fact, at the time when the uh, Civil War began, the very first regiment raised in Illinois was raised and uh, commanded by Captain Ulysses S. Grant, who was then sent to Southern Illinois to keep the Southern counties from seceding from the Union. And that was his task. And uh, many of them did anyway. But regardless, Illinois ended up raising the fourth largest number of troops in the Civil War. There were somewhere around 171 regiments were recruited out of Illinois. Illinois never faced the draft at all because they had so many people that volunteered to serve. In fact, they had too many, and many of them went off to Missouri and enlisted in Missouri once the war started. So we get this kind of dynamic whereby in the northern counties, there are all these abolitionists and who are becoming increasingly more and more abolitionists. In the southern county, there are all these southerners who they believe in what's happening there. And in the middle are all these, this kind of mixing of the two groups. And so we get a setup that's similar to the United States in that we get the southern states and the northern states and then the border states in between. And those would be the central counties of Illinois. And so they wrestled over this stuff significantly. Now, Illinois entered the Union as a a quasi-free state, and there was a great deal of debate about whether Illinois should be admitted to the Union at all. You just went through a lot of history. <laughs> That's wonderful. I guess the question is, and it's interesting they said Illinois was, it was a quasi-free state because he said the southern parts were more akin to kind of Missouri. And even when I lived in Missouri, in the southern part of Missouri, it was more akin to Arkansas in the south than say the Midwest and the North, even today. And do you find that when people talk about the Civil War and, and everything about that, they completely oversimplify history? Well, it's really a complex period, Bjorn. I mean, it's politically one of the most complex periods in our history. I often thought it was one of the most politically complex periods until most recent history, but regardless at the time of the election, of Lincoln's election, and you know, there were three individuals running on the Democratic ticket. There were three separate tickets that were lined up at the time. So 
And Lincoln very narrowly won Illinois, only 11% of the vote, so he barely swept his own state. And I call it a quasi-free state. Let me back for a minute. <clears throat> they, they began to admit states, and it doesn't become a serious concern until 1820, but they began to do this process whereby they, they balance free versus slave states. And the reason they do this is so that no one has a majority in Congress, so that you keep this you know balance going. Well, you know Mississippi was admitted in 1817, and Indiana had been admitted in 1816. And admittedly, Indiana was pretty much like Illinois, that a large contingent of the population had originally lived in the South. A number of other regions had already volunteered or had already applied for statehood, including Missouri and Illinois. And none of them had reached the 60,000 population requirement, but they were already admitting states with fewer than 60,000. So in that regard, they, they needed a free state. And Illinois comes along and says, OK, we want to we want to join the union as well. And here's our constitution. Well, the problem with the constitution is it spoke of slavery. I mean, the initial one was to outlaw slavery. They said, no, we don't want to do that. And the next one then allowed for voluntary servitude. Now, many of those contracts were for 99 years. The issue being that most, they called them indentured servants, but they volunteered to be indentured servants for 99 years, which is not really the case. Most of them were illiterates. They had no idea what they were signing at the time. The other issue, however, is that their children then were born into slavery. They weren't freed. So they, they allowed for, the French settlers had already had their slaves. And so they said, well, we have our slaves. Can we keep them? And they said, yes, you can keep them. There were about 800. But they also allowed for chattel slavery in two counties in the South, in Gallatin and Saline counties because of the salt works there. So they had chattel slavery so the slaves could work in the salt works in a free state. The weird thing about discussion about the Civil War today is, and it's not that everybody takes two sides, because that simplifies the conversation. And typically, like the loudest things you hear is when apologists or whatnot for the South or basically saying the Union was an absolute good. Uh, but the complications, just like you were talking about, are very vast. And typically, I guess, do you find that people have good historical literacy? And how does that guide them with their own understanding of themselves, maybe? We know history is important because it's how we identify ourselves. We look back at our past and say, well, this is what we are as America. But remarkably, nobody, I remember watching a video one time, uh, an interviewer asking students at actually the University of Texas, who won the Civil War? That was the question. And the first person said, when was that, 1975? But most of them thought the South won. And not to get into the lost cause and everything like that, but... It is interesting, like just like you said, the stories we tell ourselves and about our families are deeply rooted in history. Why do you think so many people continue to talk about stories about the Civil War, when in reality, that was 156 years ago? As a country, we've gone through many conflicts. We've gone through two world wars. If you need some really proud things to think about as a people... America has done a lot of things that we can be proud of. Now, there's a lot, very messy history, of course, with America that still lives today. But if you're looking for pride, military pride, there's a lot to be proud after the Civil War. 
So why do people still grab onto that? It is a cataclysmic event. I mean, we lost the, the first numbers that came out were on 660,000 deaths. That, that's military, mostly. 660,000. Now they've, they've expanded that number. I, I think the most current number is around 750,000. So we, we've never lost that many men in war before. It's devastating. But that's only the tip of the iceberg, Bjorn. It's, it's much deeper than that. It is. You know, and, and just like you said, that's only military deaths. And when you think of a conflict such as World War II, the civilian deaths, of course, were absolutely horrendous because of just the sheer brutality. I would say most of those deaths, you can correct me, <laughs> I say this incorrectly, uh, were on the Eastern Front, either via the Holocaust or in the Soviet Union because of just the total war that occurred there. And otherwise, there's so much civilian chaos and destruction, of course, majority in the South, that you know the scars would have lasted decades. And do you think that's what has contributed to it being such an important part of Southern culture? I'm just generalizing, just saying Southern culture. Me as a Westerner, I've always lived in the West. The Civil War is history. That's all it is. It's very interesting history, but it plays zero into who who I am. <laughs> well, you know, I'm. I was born in Texas, and as a child, we used to insist the South would rise again. We had no idea, I mean, what what that was all about. But we constantly said, "Oh, the South will rise again." You know, when you think of children playing simple games like. Cowboys and Indians. Now, if a child was playing with that, it's complicated because history was always complicated. But we really do reduce narratives down to simple things. And so the next question I have for you is, what did you find as a, world, as a result of your research? Like you said, you, you sometimes delved into these ideas that kind of took you on a side tangent. I'm assuming those side tangents are also very, very enjoyable to go down. Oh, yeah, I love those. <laughs> Uh, I would spend all day in an archives going off in tangents if I could. It's, a, it's a, an exciting task, I think. But, you know, I, I wanted to know, and I mentioned this earlier, why Illinois, which had been a stronghold for the Democratic Party for a long time, Stephen Douglas, you know, the, the little giant they called him, was, you know, the senator from Illinois. He was a Democrat. They had voted in Democrats for a long time. So why had suddenly they become Republicans? Now, my initial question, uh, I believe, my, my hypothesis was that soldiers enlisted and went off in the field and that they wrote letters home to their families and talked about Lincoln and talked about what they were doing. And that eventually that created this changeover to the Republican Party. But people don't switch political parties easily. It, it usually requires some kind of catastrophic event. One of those events was the Civil War. Another would be the Great Depression. Ordinarily, they don't just change parties like that, but they changed parties in, in great numbers. And what I found out was they did it because they believed that the Copperheads and those who were talking against the war were putting their sons in danger because their sons were in the field and they were not going to tolerate that. And so eventually, in great numbers, they converted to the Republican Party. Now, what I found most kind of enlightening to me at least, was that in that process, many Southern, many of the farmers in Southern Illinois had begun to recruit black labor, freedmen, who were, you know, getting away from the war effort and were working their land. Well, then when the war was over, they were, there was talk of a resolution to, you know, not allow African-Americans to settle in Illinois or to even be there. And these, these men who were all for the Civil War in the beginning said, no, 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 these guys work great and we want to, we want to keep them here because we need them to work the land. 
those small farmers couldn't take advantage of new machinery that had been recently introduced in 1860. So they were still relying on, you know, hand labor and they got it. Today we're talking to Dr. Richard Hines, Program Director of the School of Arts, Humanities, and Education. And we'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe that everyone should have access to a great education. It's not a privilege reserved for the few. And we believe higher education must come with lower tuition. Because when more doors open, more lives change. American Public University. Within reach, without limits. Online classes start every month. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we are back with Dr. Richard Hines. And let's get back to the conversation. What was one of the more interesting things you learned about right after the Civil War that happened in Illinois? Right after the Civil War? Well, they finally abolished slavery. <laughs> I mean, they, they had it had in a sense, but you know, part of that time. But really, slavery, it's interesting. We read newspapers during the war in Illinois. They're still trading slaves. They were still selling them. And you could see it in the newspapers. There were great numbers of them, but they were still doing that. But uh, they finally abolished slavery in 1865. <clears throat> so it's, or indentured servitude, they call it voluntary slavery. But. And then as a historian, what is it like to look through all those primary sources where you see something that today is completely and utterly unethical, immoral from our perspective now? For those people, it was acceptable what is it like to then go through those those documents? Well, you know, as an historian, you have to understand that dynamic that you cannot judge the past with a 21st century mindset. It's impossible because we see things differently. Now, and I'll give you an example of that. Is that, you know, we think about the South and slavery and we think about this deplorable system that where slaves were you know whipped and beaten and, and in some cases that that happened that happened a lot but in most cases that did not happen because they were valuable property they were worth tens of thousands of dollars really on today's market if you take that value i mean you pay a thousand dollars for a slave in 1840 or something that's a lot of money a thousand dollars back in that that time so it would be like buying a new car and bringing it home and beating it with a baseball bat. That would be like, you would be insane to do something like that. You need, you need their labor, so you don't, you don't want to maim them and beat them so they couldn't work. You need them to work. Right? So, you know, slavery varied you know, all over the place, depending on where you were. But the interesting thing is that if you read enough of the documents that those people believed they were doing a good thing. Today, we look at that and go, that's insanity. How can you think that holding someone in slavery is doing a good thing? And I mean, even if you're a benevolent slaveholder, you've denied them their freedom, if nothing else. At the time, they thought that many of them were devout Christians and you know, they were, you know, heard it in church too, that they were doing a good thing. And you, you read their diaries and they talk about that. And you'll also read that many of them said that slavery wasn't that profitable. And I, I don't necessarily believe that, but they will insist that. And I'm glad you brought that up because today, just like you said, our views of the world and are guided by the 21st century, everything we've gone through and the moral or the ethical lessons that have been learned. But I find it when we look back at history and we judge and we said, oh, I would have never done that if I was during that time. Or my favorite thing, Nazis are pure evil. And I find it 
it doesn't help any conversation when you say, well, Nazis are evil and that can never happen here. Because Nazis were average people in Germany that were led astray and then went down a path that they were they were good people in a really bad situation with horrible leaders. Well, but think about this for a minute, though, is that when Hitler came to power you know, and the Great Depression had hit, no country suffered more than Germany. My grandfather was there at the time. He, he traded a fine artwork. He had a steamer trunk full of Deutschmarks that was useless. He just could use it to start a fire. I mean, and Hitler brought them out of the Great Depression quickly, building a war machine, but still, I mean, <laughs> he brought them out. And, and for them, that was like, he was a, a god because we were still in the United States. We, it took the war to end the Depression for us. But he did it by you know, involving the public and building his war machines, in a sense. But, uh, so if, if you're a German during that time, and you've, and like you said, you know, history is very complex, that we, we, you know, we, we don't understand that by the end of World War One, more people in Germany were starving to death than were, being, were dying on the battlefield. I mean, they were starving to death by great numbers because England's blockade of Germany was very successful. And England kept that blockade in place during the armistice process. So during that whole period, people are still starving to death in Germany <clears throat> because they wouldn't lift the blockade. And then here comes this guy who says, you know, I'm going to end the depression right now. And he does it for you and puts food on the table. You love him at that point. All these conversations are such ripe for great ethical and moral discussions and really the complexities of history because it is so complex. Now, kind of a side question is how do you think people delve into history to really get into those complex issues. Like if you like studying about World War II, you really need to start in World War I and the end of World War I and how those relationships really sowed the seeds for the next conflict. How do you get people to really start delving into the complexities versus just looking at this simple narrative that in a sense sells easier? It's interesting. Uh, many years ago, when I was teaching at Washington State University, we had gotten a FIPSI grant to study critical thinking. And we developed rubrics, and this is way back. So at the end of that process, they had asked me, they said, so how successful was the program? And I said, well, I'm not really convinced it was that successful. And they said, why not? And I said, well, I, th I think that you can't promote critical thinking in a single course that it would need to be across the curriculum. And I said, but... I think something good came out of the whole study. And they said, what is that? I said, we learned to ask the right questions. And you know, that's what historians need to do and, and teachers need to do is ask the right questions because students will just take a superficial look at everything as they read. I mean, they, they read things and study, but they don't necessarily get deep into it unless you ask them the right questions. And so, you know, that, that is one of the benefits of working with someone who's a trained historian, at least. And then another question, since you were talking about trained historians, how difficult is it as a trained historian not to let your own view of the world or your bias creep into your writings? Well, yeah, you know, we, we're really diligent about that. We're, and it just uh, it, it eventually gets, gets to the point after doing it long enough that that's the one thing that you're always keeping an eye out for. Our, our task is to get to the truth. We seek the truth, that's it. And oftentimes the document trail leads us in a different direction than what we want it to, but we still have to follow the document trail. We can't throw stuff out and then say, oh, well, I didn't see anything you know, relevant to that. All I saw was this part. 
And I gave you an example earlier that when I was getting ready to write a dissertation, I, I looked at this question and, and determined that this is what happened. And then when I got in the documentation, it's not what happened at all. So I had to take a different course. I was still able to get from point A to point B. I just had to take a different direction to get there. And since, of course, your focus was Illinois and, of course, Lincoln because of that, what is your opinion of, and this is a side, the great man theory? You know, where our history is, you know, guided by unique individuals. And I say great man because that's how it was phrased originally, but the great person theory, I guess you could say. Do you find that Lincoln was a great man for the time? Well, you know, I, I, as I said before, I think he was our greatest president, and I admire Lincoln tremendously. I, he was a tremendous wordsmith, and he could write these speeches that just, I mean, I, I have them all here. And I, I look at them all the time because they're amazing that he, I mean, he wrote the Gettysburg Dress on a napkin. I mean, the other guy spoke forever and said nothing. And then Lincoln got up in a matter of minutes, said everything. So he was the right man at the right time. And I think that what I was working on with my research at the time proves that in, in a sense that he had been through a tremendous amount of experience in Illinois before going to Washington, D.C. And so... He had been through this slavery debate. I mean, I mean, in 1848, because of the fact that Southern Illinois residents watched people come you know, down the National Road and go to Missouri with their slaves, and they were going, oh, my God, you know, look at all the money that's going into Missouri, and none of it's stopping here. We need slavery in Illinois. And so they formed a new constitutional convention in 1848 to make Illinois a slave state. <laughs> it failed. It failed because there had been, by that time, enough people that had migrated into the northern counties from New England. And so, but they also then tried to, you know, outlaw slavery, and that didn't happen in 1848 either. So he had been through all of this stuff. And so by the time he gets to D.C., he's well prepared to do what he needed to do, uh, even though, you know, people say, well, he violated the Constitution by suspending habeas corpus in Maryland. I think it was necessary as a War Power Act. And that's one of the things that is very interesting about Lincoln is, especially today, why do you think so many people want to use Lincoln to their own political advantage today? Is it because he is often considered one of the greatest, him and George Washington, as far as the presidents go. But then you'll also hear these interesting and odd conversations about, well, did you know that Lincoln was a Republican? And Republicans today are X, Y, and Z. You know, they simplify complex political history into, hey, look, there's a great historical figure and one of our greatest presidents, and so that's why we're awesome today. Yeah, well, the Democrats of today are the Republicans of 1860, and the Republicans of 1860 are the Democrats of today. So it's, it's you know, they're, they're, the parties have switched around entirely how their, their focus is. So. And this leads us to our last question is, we always ask our students this question, what did you find as a result of your research? So I'll ask it for you. Why is this topic important to you, and how did it guide you in your life? Well, it's not for my, my life. Why is that research significant? I think that research is significant because of the fact that two things. is Number one is that I think it's important to know that Illinois was not necessarily a free state when she became admitted to the Union. That was, was not unusual. It's happened in some other states as well. But I also think that what's really significant here is that this argument that Jefferson Davis 
had much more valuable experience prior to becoming the president of the Confederacy versus that of Lincoln. And that in reality, Lincoln had been through the same debate for over 20 years and had debated on the floor of the House in Illinois as well. So he was well prepared for that process. And that, that's important, I believe, to understand that. You know, that Illinois mirrored the nation and went through the process before we did. This leads me to my last follow-up question is, why should we all be amateur historians? I, of course, am a huge proponent of the liberal arts, humanities, learning more, lifetime learning, etc. But especially with history, I mean, just like you said, it's hard to even think of a politician today that can write their own speeches or can craft anything as Lincoln did. And so why should people really focus on history and learn more history? Well, I mean, it, it sours our individual histories. I mean, you'll notice if you go to a state archives anywhere uh, and walk in the door, the vast majority of the people in there are doing genealogy work. So they're tracing their family histories and they're usually elderly. So when we're young, we just, we're out to have a good time and, you know, and compete and and find our place in the world. And then later on, when we start to get, you know, grow a little bit older, we go, okay, now wait a minute, where did I come from? And where is my place in the world? And how did I get there? So then suddenly history later in your life becomes very significant to you because you, you want to know. You want that information that you didn't have before. And the interesting thing is that then the archives, archivists are, you know, they're, they love it when guys like I come in because they get somebody to take a work with an historian and but regardless, it becomes more important if you come older and it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, we right now, I hear history being, I don't even know the word, bastardized or whatever the case may be, on a daily basis. I mean, the, this this whole 1619 deal that's going on now. I mean, they talk about the introduction of slavery in 1619, but that ship and all the African-Americans aboard that ship became indentured servants and then became free at the end of their indenture. And one of them became the very first slaveholder, legal slaveholder in the United States. Anthony Johnson was his name. And he sued another person who his indentured servant had moved over to that guy's house. He didn't like working for Anthony. And Anthony sued and they made that man a slave. And so Anthony was the first legal slaveholder in the United States. And his slave was white. Now, that doesn't justify anything. And don't please don't you know uh, see that. But. We, we need to understand that the introduction of slavery by that first ship was, that's not what happened. Do you find that that is an attempt to, again, simplify history and to put a date on something? So then as we teach kids history, we can just say, look, it started here and all the bad things started after that. Well, maybe, but I, I think that in a sense it's meant to you know, history's always been used to, to, to teach patriotism, and, and we do that markedly here in the United States, and I, I'm not sure that that's really a good thing. It's not meant to, to be kind of manipulated to do something that you don't want it to do. No, and I completely agree. History should not be about patriotism because history is history. History should be what actually happened. And as a people, we could always be proud, of course, of what occurred in the past, but I know even from my own life, there's a large swath of history, of American history, I didn't know. <laughs> and then when you become an adult and you're like, I, did, I never learned this? Well, I guess I didn't learn it because it's tragic and messy and ugly. But that also limits your understanding 
of who you are and who we are as a people. Not that you need to teach like eight-year-olds the harsh truth of reality, <laughs> but by the time kids get into junior high and high school, you are definitely delving into the, the more complex issues of existence. I think you can delve into many of those without going into deep complexity. I mean, you can, you can still kind of get to the nuances of it all without devastating them. But, you know, we, we hear all the time about, you know, the ivory tower and what we're teaching their kids and, you know, we're all a bunch of liberals and whatever the case may be, but because we're teaching them the truth and that many people don't want to hear the truth. It's painful as it is, but we need to understand those things because if you don't know them, you're going to just keep doing them. That's completely correct. And that is an odd argument because everything I've ever experienced in my life in college and in academia has been a search for the truth. It's not like I've taken courses or talked to people where they're like, you know what's really great? Communism. You know who really did it well? The Soviet Union. Because <laughs> in every conversation about the Soviet Union, it starts in the 30s with the Holomodor. And before that, with famines and the purges and just the horrible, horrible things that Stalin did. And never is it ever like, communism is great, and we should have that here. That way, we're going to then view our history as terrible and uplift others. It's really just more about, again, finding the truth. And it's important, uh, Bjorn, you know what I mean? We, we, we too often go off you know, based on, you know, misinformation and act on that. And, and I think a good, good example of that's Vietnam. I mean, that was a civil war. And we got involved believing that there was one state driving all the communist states, and that was the Soviet Union. And we look at the Chinese involvement in Vietnam, and, and our, our take on that was totally misconstrued at the time. I mean, Ho Chi Minh City wanted to establish a democracy, <laughs> He didn't want to establish a you know, communist state. He wanted a democracy. He just wanted to be one party in that process. I could see how if people want history to be simple, <laughs> they want all the conflicts we were in to be righteous. With Vietnam or even Afghanistan, the history of Afghanistan is such a sad, tragic history that everybody has beat up on that poor country. And it's still struggling because of just decades and decades of outside interference well you know that and the fact that it's tribal in nature and and they're you know they're not i mean the idea was we we're going to you know make it a democratic state how, how can you make a democratic state with people who don't understand democracy and are ruled by a system that's fragmented like that I and mean, there's no centralization there despite their best efforts it's still not it's that's a fun part and I completely agree. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking to Dr. Richard Hines, Program Director of the School of Arts, Humanities, and Education. Thank you for listening. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU, American Public University.